This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Marcus Allen from Nexus Magazine is here for the full two hours to discuss the possibility the Apollo lunar landings were a hoax. Uh, Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. And we are streaming live, the audio at least, on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. So get on up to Strange Planet, uh, the YouTube channel, and don't forget to hit that red sub button. We are approaching 19,000 subscribers. We'd like to get to 20 in the next month or two if we can. Uh, Like many others, Marcus Allen watched the Apollo moon landing live on television, and at the time, he applauded the evident success of those missions. After attending a lecture many years ago which questioned the validity of the moon landings, Marcus decided to carry on his own research. He is the British distributor and publisher of the UK edition of Nexus magazine. Nexus, of course, deals with news and information that's overlooked unreported or ignored by the mainstream media. Subjects covered include hidden history, future science, alternative health issues, conspiracies, and UFOs. And a great pleasure to welcome Marcus Allen back to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Marcus. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Richard. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So now, how many years ago was it that you you first attended that lecture that kind of turned your worldview around? It was uh, in the early 90s. I think it was 92. It was in Glastonbury. Now, most people are familiar with Glastonbury for the music festival. But this is uh, a different uh, series of lectures that are held in Glastonbury regularly. And it was just one. He was talking about something quite different. He's talking about megalithic architecture, I believe it was. But he's showing a lot of photographs. And he just almost in passing said, well, of course, you know all those photographs allegedly taken on the moon. He said they weren't taken on the moon. They couldn't have been. And I thought, what is he talking about? What a stupid thing to say. Now, I was trained as a photographer in London uh, back in the 60s, so I was familiar with the cameras that I subsequently discovered were used, the Hasselblad cameras, 
the films that we use, Kodak Ektachrome Transparency Material, black and white film, I was familiar with all that. I knew what cameras could and couldn't do. And I knew what film could and couldn't record. So I went out and bought a set of photographs. Because this is before the days of the internet, which you can you can download anything you like now, and you can download every single photograph allegedly taken on the lunar surface now if you want to. But at that time, I had to go and buy some, which I did, and I looked at them. And I thought, whoa, I can see what he's talking about. I can see there's a problem here. Because the just the, the half a dozen photographs that I looked at, uh, many well-known photographs, Man on the Moon and... Aldrin coming down the ladder and the Apollo 15 lunar, uh, lunar rover and all that. They were just sort of basic photographs. But I could see there was a slight problem because photographic film has to be exposed correctly, especially if it's a reversal film, i.e. transparency material. If it's not exposed correctly, you ruin the photograph, you've got to start again. And these photographs were brilliant. I mean, they were in my view, almost professional-level photographs. But they were supposedly taken by astronauts who were <clears throat> in a place they'd never been to before. So I was, I was intrigued enough to follow it up and discover a little bit more about Apollo and the conditions on the moon and everything that went along with that. And the more I discovered, the more I found that there were anomalies in the photographs. There were anomalies in the story. And it just didn't seem to hang together the way it should have been. Because if something doesn't seem right, it may well not be right. Now, just, sorry. Do, do you, just for the record, do you uh, believe that the, the, the photographs were likely uh, taken elsewhere, not on the moon, but that it is possible or not possible that man landed on the moon? That's a good point, because there is a quite distinct difference between the two. My view is that the photographs could not have been taken on the lunar surface, and we'll come to the reasons why that is the case maybe a bit later. As to whether man has landed on the moon, I have seen no evidence that I can find to show that that has happened, other than what NASA, God bless them, tell us happened on Apollo. Because no other nation has claimed that humans have landed on the lunar surface. There have been several nations which have uh, landed unmanned craft on the lunar surface, and the first to reach the moon with uh, an unmanned satellite was actually the Soviet Union in 1959. Then there were a series of unmanned uh, craft from America and from the Soviet Union that landed on the moon. Landing an unmanned craft on the moon is not a problem. I don't dispute any of that. What I do find a problem is landing humans on the moon and then getting him back to Earth. That is the real difficulty I have in accepting as being true. All right. So let's let's focus, <laughs> no pun intended, on the photographs, uh, first of all. And uh, as you say, you're familiar with the Hasenblatt camera. That was the that was the camera that was used. Now Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin they wandered around supposedly on the surface of the moon for about two and a half hours. How That's many correct. how many photographs did they, just now? We're just talking about the Apollo Eleven uh, landing. How many photographs did they supposedly take in two and a half hours? Right on Apollo Eleven. 
there was only one camera that was being used to take all the photographs on the lunar surface. As you say, that uh, Armstrong was on the surface for just, just under two and a half hours, Buzz Aldrin slightly less time. And in that time, they took 121 individual photographs on the lunar surface. Now, that's about one a minute, a bit less than one a minute. And it's, it's not, I mean, that, that isn't a problem to take that number of photographs. Because obviously that was something that they wanted to do, to, to show where they'd been. You know, it's like anybody going on holiday. You take photographs of where you've been so you can show the folks back home what it was like. Presumably that's what they were doing. Though so I think there was a bit more to it than that. But they couldn't have been on the lunar surface to take those photographs that we're told that they did. And the reason for that is actually quite straightforward. But it was only something that I discovered just over in September 2018, just over a year ago, when I attended a lecture here given in London at the British Interplanetary Society by a gentleman by the name of Phil Pressel. Now, Phil Pressel was an engineer, a very, very competent engineer, who worked for a company called Elmer, Elmer Perkin in Danbury, Connecticut. And their job was to build photographic cameras to be flown on the Hexagon spy satellite, which would be launched in 1971. And it used photographic film, because at that time, digital equipment was not sufficiently advanced to be able to, uh, to be used to obtain the images or the quality of the images that were required by uh, the security services, CIA, the NSA, and so on, who wanted to find out what was happening in the Soviet Union. Now, F uh, Phil Pressel was extremely proud of his achievement, and he had every reason to be so, because he had developed, along with other people at Elmer Perkin, um, a twin camera system, so they could take stereo images which from a stereo image you can determine the height of a rocket or the size of a building or the length of a ship. And the satellite was to be flown on a polar orbit launched from Vandenberg, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. On a polar orbit, I, it would just circle the Earth from North Pole to South Pole, and as the Earth rotated underneath it, it would take photographs, and every 24 hours or so it could take photographs of the same place. So it was a good system. But one of the points that he made, almost inadvertently, he said, well, of course, the film had to be kept pressurized. I thought, why does the film have to be kept pressurized? And the reason is that in a vacuum, photographic film outgasses, which is a technical term for basically it loses its chemicals. Photographic film is made of a chemical emulsion, which is coated onto a polyester base, and the chemical emulsion will outgas in a vacuum. So it had to be kept under a very small pressure, one pound per square inch pressure. Well, a spy plane, excuse me, Marcus, a spy plane that's flying around the world, uh, what's the altitude? 30, 32,000 feet, 38,000 feet? Uh, yeah, the uh, U-2 spy plane flew at about 60,000 feet. Ah, 60,000. So twice the size of, uh, twice the, the height of an airliner. Yes, it's twice the height of an airliner. Uh, okay. They fly at about 35,000 feet, which is just slightly higher than Mount Everest. 
Mount Everest is just short of 29,000 feet. And at that height, the air pressure is about five pound per square inch. You go up to about 60,000 feet, it's about one pound per square inch. So a spy plane flying at that altitude wouldn't actually have a problem. It's when you get beyond what's called the Kármán line. The Kármán line is, the, is the, the point at which space begins, if you like, and the atmosphere ends. That's at 62, 62 miles above the Earth's surface, quite high up, at 320,000 feet. If you get above that height, you're into, into space. You're not yet into deep space, but you, you're into space, and the International Space Station is currently orbiting at uh, about 150 miles up, maybe slightly higher. It varies its height. And at that height, the vacuum levels are quite severe. Not as severe as they are on the moon. You get to the moon, you've got real problems. Because the vacuum levels on the moon are at least double what they are at the International Space Station. Okay, so they pressurized the the camera so that the, the film would not, there wouldn't be any outgassing. Isn't that as simple as that? It's as simple as that, and that's what occurred in the Hexagon spy satellite. Um, there is in the spy satellite, which is a, quite a big thing. It's about the size of a school bus. Uh, it's about uh, 40, 50 foot long, 20 foot in diameter. It's quite a big piece of kit. Uh, it was launched on the uh, Titan III rocket from Vandenberg Air Force Base. As I say, it went into polar orbit. <coughs> and inside this satellite, the Hexagon spy satellite, there was a separate container which held all the film stock and the cameras and the tubing, the quite complex tubing through which the film was fed in order to take it from the photographic reels on which it was stored through the cameras, it was uh, taken because in front of the cameras they had rotating mirrors because the, the satellite is orbiting quite fast. So you had to eliminate the apparent movement of the Earth beneath the satellite. It's a very complex system, but extremely effective. Now, the remarkable thing about Hexagon's spy satellite is that once the photographs have been taken, the film was then wound onto what was referred to as buckets. There were four of them on each. There were, there were 19 Hexagon satellites launched over the following 18 years. The buckets were dropped from the satellite, and get this, they were caught in giant fishing net-type contraptions being flown by aircraft out of Hawaii, and they were caught as they fell out of the sky. It's an extraordinary story. It's, it's quite word. true. They actually only missed one. One fell into the Pacific, and they had to get it back so the Russians didn't get hold of it and find out what they were doing. So the long and the short of it here is, Marcus, you're saying that in order to um, prevent outgassing of the film on the moon, they would have had to have had a very uh, an elaborate um, type of container in the vacuum of space to prevent that. And, and there's no evidence that they had anything like that. Is that the idea? That's exactly the, the point. Uh, yes. Uh, in order to prevent the outgassing of the film and also in a vacuum photographic film or the, the backing of it, the, the, the base, the S-star base, gets very brittle. 
and it wouldn't then go through the rather complex mechanism in the Hasselblad film magazines. Now, the Hasselblad cameras that they used on the moon, how were they, how were they modified? I'm, I'm, not, I'm guessing that they weren't the type of Hasselblad that, that you use. Uh, it, to, to be honest, they're fairly similar. Um, a, a Hasselblad camera is a magnificent piece of kit. It's built almost like a Swiss watch. It's extremely complex. You can go to a shop and buy one today, which will look quite similar, ironically, quite similar to the lunar Hasselblad cameras. It costs about $45,000, but uh, you can still go out and buy one if you want to. And they're very, very good cameras, mainly because the lenses were particularly good. They were made by Zeiss. And the mechanism of the Hasselblad camera was modified slightly because... Uh, uh, if you can imagine the picture of an astronaut in his full spacesuit, because you can't wear half a spacesuit in space, you've got to wear the whole lot the helmet, the gloves, the boots, <laughs> Indeed, the whole thing. Yes. <clears throat> if you're wearing a spacesuit, you can't get your head down to look through the viewfinder of the Hasselblad, which is on the top of the camera. Uh -huh. so, so, because it's also a single lens reflex camera, I, you look through the lens in the same way that the light coming in and records on modern-day cameras on the CCD chip, the digital chip, in the older-style cameras. These are film cameras, and anybody who's never used a film camera, this will all sound very 20th century and, and very weird and historical, but it's the this is the case. This is what happened. So there was no viewfinder on this camera, and the click that you hear when you take a photograph is normally the, the mirror moving out of the way of the light coming in to hit the film behind it. So there was no mirror because you couldn't get your head down to look through it, so they didn't have a viewfinder. So they were just guessing. Basically, well, they were pointing it with their body because the camera was mounted on the astronaut. There, there are many photographs showing astronauts wearing their Hasselblad cameras. They were mounted on a special bracket on their chest. So they would move their body to... Um, presumably point the camera at the place that they wanted a photograph. And would they be using an extremely wide lens just to give them, so they would be more forgiving in terms of the framing? It was a slightly wide angle lens. It was a 60 millimeter lens on the Hasselblad. It's a Biogon lens, 60 millimeter, which is the equivalent of a 35 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter camera. So it's a slight wide angle. Yes, it's quite right. And obviously with a wide angle lens, you can, you've got more, room for error. Uh, you don't have to point it very accurately, which you would have to do if you're using a telephoto lens. And those were available for the Hasselblad camera. And on the later missions, they used 500 millimeter lenses, which are, have a very, very small angle of view. And what but about uh, automatic focus? Did they have automatic focus? No, there was no automatic focus. The focusing you had to do by moving the what's called the focus ring, which is on the lens. You set your aperture, which is the uh, f2.8, uh, 3.5, 5.6, f8, f11, and so on. You set that on the lens, and you, you set the shutter speed, 125th, 250th. You set that on the lens as well, and you had to do this manually. There was no automatic function. Wearing, those, those, in, wearing those enormous garden gloves. Uh, yeah, those heavy-duty gardening gloves were, were very simple things to use to focus a camera with. Have you ever tried doing it? <laughs> I no. don't think... No. Uh, let's just say, if you're, 
if you're having your wedding photographs taken, you wouldn't be very pleased to see the photographer wearing heavy-duty gardening gloves to focus his camera, would you? No, you wouldn't. No, indeed. And of those 121 photos, yes. uh, I mean, any I don't know how many of those had, let's say, uh, if it was Neil Armstrong with the camera, I don't know how many of those were of Buzz Aldrin. Were, were there any with, with his head cut off? Because, you know, I remember those old cameras, my, my grandmother, they, she was always cutting our heads off in our, in our pictures. <laughs> that was always one of the problems with not using a viewfinder. You, you tended to either cut the head off or get the thing off center. And in those first, uh, um, of those 121 photographs, there are no heads cut off. There are no, there are one or two that are, shall we say, rather poorly composed. Uh, but that may be because I think the the official description is inadvertent shutter release, which means that they fire the camera without pointing it at a particular subject. And none of them are out of focus. There are there are there are a couple that are out of focus. Yes, uh, they're not a hundred percent, but they come close to being a hundred percent accurate. Uh, they're well pretty, exposed. Now, right. there's, a, there's a sequence of eight photographs. And most people are familiar with the uh, sequence of uh, Buzz Aldrin climbing down the ladder of the lunar lander, which is called the Eagle. There's a series of eight photographs. The first one is of his feet coming out through the door of the upper section of the lunar lander. And then you see him uh, standing on top of the porch and you come, he comes down the ladder. And then, almost ridiculously, Neil Armstrong, who's taking the photographs, decides he would much rather take a photograph of the rubbish bag which he had thrown out of the craft earlier and the foot pad of the lander. Presumably Marcus, I got to jump in here. Pardon the interruption. Okay. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, work our way through those uh, those eight photographs as That's Buzz good. Aldrin is descending down from the Eagle onto the lunar surface. Marcus Allen is the distributor of the UK edition of Nexus Magazine, publisher, distributor. We'll be back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Marcus Allen stays with us, the British distributor and publisher of the UK mag edition of Nexus magazine. Uh, how do we subscribe, Marcus? Uh, go to the website, nexusmagazine.com. Uh, in fact, Nexus is on sale throughout Canada. Uh, good bookstop, book, start again. Good bookshops will have it. Anywhere that sells magazines should be able to get it for you if they don't have it in stock. But go to the website, nexusmagazine.com, and you'll find on there how to subscribe. It's very simple, very straightforward, and extremely good value. Indeed, indeed. All right, back to the uh, back to the lunar landing module, the Eagle. Buzz Aldrin is coming down, and Neil Armstrong uh, takes a series of eight photographs. Uh, and one of those photographs, you say, is this trash bag, I guess, that Buzz has thrown out of the, of the module. Tell me about that. That's right. Yes, it was. Uh, it was thrown out before they actually, well, after they'd opened the door, before the astronauts had allegedly come out of the lander. Now, I say there's a series of eight photographs. Six of them feature Buzz Aldrin, and two of them feature. One of them features the rubbish bag, and the other features 
a foot uh, the, the foot of the lander. Presumably they had to make sure it wasn't damaged. So quite what they would have done if it had been damaged, you no know, history doesn't relate because there's no rescue service on the moon. Now, these eight photographs, as I say, you can go on to, uh, there are many websites, there are four websites that I know of that, that carry the full Apollo series of images. I happen to use the Lunar and Planetary Institute website. I just prefer the way they've laid it out. <clears throat> and you can see these photographs in se the sequence they were taken. Now, any photographer will know if you'd use photographic film, once you'd taken the photographs and you developed the film, you wanted to see what the images were that you'd, you'd taken. And you would produce what's called a contact sheet for the simple expedient of spreading out all the negatives onto a sheet of photographic paper, exposing some light to it so it, it uh, exposed the photographic paper, and you could then have a look at all the photographs you had taken in the sequence you had taken. Right. It's a positive image of the film strip. There's no enlarging or anything. That's right. No, no enlarging. It's just a positive image. It's the same size as the negative. Most people would be using 35 millimeter negatives, which are relatively small. The Hasselblad used 70 millimeter negatives or positives in the case of the color film, <coughs> negatives in the case of black and white. And these were, these were larger, so they gave very good quality images because the larger the negative, the better the quality and the higher the resolution. But if you look at the photographs uh, on the websites where you can see them all in sequence, all 121, on what's called magazine number 40. Uh, there weren't 40 magazines, it just happened to be the number that NASA chose to identify it. Magazine 40, it's on AS 11, 40, and then there are 121 photographs in that on that magazine. Uh, there was one other magazine used, magazine 37, and I believe there was, a, there was one magazine 44. Anyway, you can go onto the website, you can see all the photographs taken, and on the lunar surface, in total, there were 5,771 taken by the 12 astronauts who walked on the lunar surface, we're told. Those photographs exist. You can go onto, online and you can find them. The point about this is that Neil Armstrong is using a camera that has no viewfinder. He's taken... Buzz Aldrin coming down from the ladder. Now, if you look at it, uh, you'll see that the ladder down which Buzz Aldrin is climbing is in shadow. The sun is on the other side of the lander. You can see it quite easily. I mean, you can see the shadow of the lander on some of the later photographs. The point is that he has to, Neil Armstrong, not only has to focus the camera on Buzz Aldrin on various positions on the ladder, he then has to change the aperture and the focus to photograph the rubbish bag, and he has to do it again, change the focus and the aperture, because the landing leg he takes photographs of is in direct sunlight, so it would be a smaller aperture to compensate for that. The photographs are very, very well exposed. They're also very well framed. How did Neil Armstrong do it? We all know he's a very, very good test pilot. But was he a brilliant photographer? These are professional-level photographs, professional right. standard photographs. 
Right. They're just too good. And uh, again, with the wearing the uh, the big bulky helmet, wearing the, those big, we'll call them gardening gloves, uh, yeah. you're, you're just not be, going to be able to manipulate the focus ring, the, the aperture, uh, and so forth to that degree. Now, okay, so that aside, let's talk about the mechanics of the camera. You say the Hasenblatt is built like a, a Swiss watch. It's a very precise mechanical uh, device. How would that camera operate on the extreme temperatures in the in this? I'm not sure what the temperature variance is in the sun and in the shade on the moon, but it's a tremendous variance. There is there's a huge range of temperature, uh, which is one of the problems. The 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 temperature in the sun on the lunar surface, because there's no atmosphere on the moon, which is correct. There is no atmosphere. Therefore, light from the sun would immediately be at plus 120 degrees centigrade, i.e. higher than the boiling point of water. If you move into the shadow, in this case of the lunar lander, the temperature will immediately fall to minus 120 degrees centigrade, i.e. colder than any temperature that we experience here on Earth. The the lowest temperature we experience on Earth is in uh, Antarctica, which is minus 80 degrees centigrade. So you've got an extreme range of temperature. Now, because there is no atmosphere on the moon, a vacuum, besides its other properties, is a very good insulator. But the effect of sunlight hitting any object on the lunar surface will be to heat it up instantly, or as fast as the uh, the heat can be absorbed. Heat will be radiated away, but there's no convection like we have here on Earth where you've got an atmosphere and there's no conduction, which is where you've got heat traveling through an object. You only get radiant energy. One of the other problems with this camera, as I say, it's a brilliant piece of equipment, but we know from the photographs what you see of the Hasselblad camera, and there are film cameras as well, mounted in the lunar lander to mara 16 millimeter film camera which operates in much the same way as a stills camera there is no pressurized container around the camera none whatsoever and it would be visible if it existed it doesn't exist there is no pressurization of any of the Hasselblad cameras or any of the mara film cameras so we, we have a real problem here. How, were those photo- how did that photographic film survive in the vacuum of space on the moon? And, and how, does, how do all the, me- the, the mechanics of the camera, I don't know, have you used the Hasselblad in extreme conditions here on Earth? I've, I've used a, a Hasselblad in fairly warm conditions, yes, but just a, a, a warm summer day over in England, which maybe people might say, well, that's not going to be very warm, is it? But it's, one can operate a camera in a fairly comfortable range of temperatures. If you're starting to use it in Antarctica or in, in really severe weather, like I believe you get in Canada, you might start getting problems. Because one of the things that happen is that film starts to go very brittle in low temperature and it starts to break. That's why when it outgasses in a vacuum, it starts to break. Right. What about the mechanics of the camera itself, like the the shutter itself? Yeah. The shutter is is mounted in the lens of the camera, 
and it's what's called a leaf. Uh, it's it's a uh, an iris shutter. It it opens. There are about six different parts to the shutter. Now these are normally lubricated, as are all the mechanical components, which which advance that when, when the film is exposed, it has to be then the film has to be moved to the next exposure, and that's done by mechanical means driven by batteries. It's the only automatic feature on the Hasselblad camera. The film advanced. So you've got batteries in this camera. In a vacuum, I don't think so. Those batteries would start to uh, leak quite severely. Also, any, any lubrication of the moving parts, and there are gears inside the magazine which advance the film, those have to be lubricated. Because without lubrication, metal starts to bind together. Lubrication in a vacuum will immediately start to outgas or boil, which is what water does in a vacuum. It boils because you, you, you lower the point at which the boiling can occur. Right. Outgassing is where the volatile elements of any liquid are basically forced out by the vacuum. There's a... a just as an aside, there is a phenomena called cold welding, where two metals, if they touch in a vacuum, are instantly welded together. It's to do with the lack of uh, any molecules which will separate them. Ah, okay. you put I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah, if if there's no if 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 you're in a vacuum, there is no. Uh, air to separate anything you put in and metals touching each other will cold weld which is a phenomenon which was uh, discovered when people started going into space Aha, uh -huh. so I, I, I got the picture again, no pun intended there is no way unless there were significant modifications to the, these cameras that they would be able to operate in the, in the vacuum of space in the extreme temperatures in space Exactly and, and also, one, uh, one other point, when, you, when you're going to take a photograph, you've got to press the shutter button. And on a, sh on a Hasselblad, the shutter button is always on the front of the camera. Now, this was modified, so it was about one inch square, but you still couldn't see it from inside a spacesuit. So how did you know you'd actually reached it? You were supposed to feel around and prod around until you made sure you got your finger in the right place. <laughs> and also, you didn't know if you'd taken a photograph, because the... The film counter dial is on the side of the camera, and you couldn't see that from inside the spacesuit. Aha. All right, so, Marcus, we'll take another time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk about the film and how that might survive radiation. Remember taking film through the, uh, the security checkpoint at the airport? Oh, yes. Ruin your vacation pictures. All right, we'll uh, discuss. On the other side, Marcus Allen is the British distributor and publisher of the UK edition of Nexus magazine. Back with more in a moment. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Marcus Allen is with us, a uh, British distributor, publisher of the UK edition of Nexus magazine. And 
Uh, he says there are a lot of problems uh, with uh, attempting to take photographs on the surface of the moon. Um, this is a short segment. It's about five minutes here. So let's talk about the film. And uh, you mentioned that it gets brittle and so forth. But what about the radiation? We Again, we're all familiar with uh, those of us old enough to remember taking film through the airport. You uh, you, you don't want it to get um, exposed to the uh, the X-ray machine there. Uh, so you would often you would pass the high speed film anyway. You would pass that uh, to the uh, you know the person, and they would bypass the machine and so forth. So talk to me about the radiation and film. Well, that's that, that's one of the key points about the uh, the whole questioning of the Apollo missions, because aside from various other problems which you might come on to later, one of which is reentry, the radiation experienced in space about 500 miles above the earth's surface you have something called the van allen radiation belts which are belts of radiation and these are quite severe problems and as you say if you if you if you didn't take your photographic film out of your camera and pass it through to the attendants so that they could hand examine it the film could be damaged unless you had it in a lead line box which is the other way of doing it because photographic film is susceptible to radiation. That's, that's what electromagnetic radiation is called. That's what visible light is. It's radiation. Films are designed to record radiation, but only in certain, at certain levels. If you have too much radiation, you'll damage your film. It'll become what's called fogged, which is, uh, makes it look as if it's a bit um, uh, taken in a, in a cloud or a bunch of steam or something like that and and this was demonstrated very very clearly at the at chernobyl nuclear disaster where several people did have cameras they did take photographs at the time that the reactor blew up and the film and the photographs which they obtained were seriously damaged by the radiation which they were experiencing i mean it affected them as well several people died as a result of it but photographic film can be damaged by radiation. And this is why, if you ever bought a, a roll of photographic film, and we are talking photographic film, not digital here, photographic film, you would buy it, and it had an expiry date on it. Why would photographic film have an expiry date? It, it can't rot. It can't, it's not a piece of food. The reason it, was, uh, it had an expiry date was because the manufacturers of the film, Kodak or Fuji or Ilford or Agfa, they didn't want their customers to come back to them a few years later and complain that the film that they bought, say, five years earlier, really wasn't producing very good pictures. They all looked a bit sort of foggy and, and contrast levels weren't right. And the reason is that background radiation, if a photographic film is exposed to it for long enough, it will absorb sufficient radiation to damage the film, just if it sat in your drawer at home. So radiation is a major problem. Now, we're t there's a great deal of discussion about how much radiation is there in space. And uh, the normal answer will be, well, it's like getting a couple of chest X-rays and it's nothing to worry about. Don't, you know, don't concern yourself with it. You know, the astronauts are all fine. Look, they all went to the moon. They got back. They must be all right. So it can't be much of a problem. That's the normal argument given by people who support NASA. And fair enough. And uh, obviously you... You want to feel that uh, an organization 
as competent as NASA is doing the best thing. And, and they must have known that uh, radiation wasn't a problem or they wouldn't have sent astronauts out in, onto the moon, would they? Well, why didn't the Russians go to the moon? The reason they didn't go to the moon was because they knew the dangers of radiation. And they said, we will not be sending any cosmonauts to the moon until we can ensure their safe return due to the dangers of radiation. So they knew about the problems. And, and uh, none of the photographs show any evidence of fogging whatsoever. Not, no. only the one, not only the 121 from Apollo 11, but let's talk about how many did you say across all the Apollo missions? 15,000 or something? There were 5,771 5, photographs taken on the lunar surface. There were about another 25,000 taken in the, uh, uh, by various astronauts as they went to and from the moon, <clears throat> the moon and in, the, in orbit around the moon in the command module. So there were quite a lot of photographs taken beyond Earth, shall we say, or allegedly beyond Earth. Because if radiation is as big a problem as it appears to be, and there is still a great deal of dispute about this, then how come nobody else has been to the moon? Nobody's been to the moon for 50 years. No, 1972 was the last alleged mission. I say alleged because I have very serious doubts that it occurred the way we were told. So let's say for in 50 years, 50 years ago, that was when uh, the Apollo missions occurred, Apollo 8 in 1968, Apollo 17 in 1972. All right. they, all, they, they all did this incredible trip to the moon. They didn't experience any effects of radiation. None of the photographs taken in space by the astronauts appear to have any effect of radiation damage at all. And I've looked at hundreds of, if not thousands of photographs that were taken. Okay, Marcus, I've got to jump in. We've got to take another time out and uh, we'll come back. And as we approach the top of the hour, we'll open up those phone lines and we'll take questions and comments in hour two with Marcus Allen right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, we are back with uh, Marcus Allen. And uh, Marcus, tell us once again how to uh, subscribe or get a copy of Nexus Magazine. Right, Nexus Magazine. Uh Go to our website, nexusmagazine.com. All the instructions are there about subscribing from any country in the world, whether it's Canada, America, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina. We have subscribers everywhere around the world. We distribute 40 to 40 countries from the UK, and there's another 40 countries from Australia. Because Nexus is actually an Australian magazine. I publish and distribute the UK edition, which is the same as the uh, Australian edition, the same as the North American edition. That comes out on a regular basis, and it's definitely worth reading. There are two types of people in the world, those who read Nexus and those who are about to. <laughs> Indeed. Nice nice sales job. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, now, uh, much has been made of the shadows on the moon. Uh, the fact that it the, the shadows are uh, they seem to be coming from different light sources, uh, but others have countered. Well, 
you've got two things. First of all, you've got a sun, which is 93 million miles away, low, sort of low in the horizon. And then you've got the sort of the irregular surface of the moon, uh, which can produce uh, irregular shadows. And I mean, that there's some truth to that. I've seen that, you know, if you're in a bumpy road and the shadows can be irregular. How do you, if this was in fact, uh, faked and shot in a let's say a sound studio with with lighting grids and so forth would i mean did they have the technology back then to do something like that that's that's the big question to me in 50 years ago did they have the technology uh to to fake something like that of course they did of course they did um i've seen 80 foot i've seen 80 foot gorillas climb the empire state building (laughs) I've seen dinosaurs chasing kids around kitchens in Jurassic Park. Uh, the technology exists, but when we watch that sort of thing, the, the dinosaurs and, the, and King Kong, we know it's a film. We know it's fake. We suspend our disbelief and we enjoy the film because it's great fun. But the moon landings are portrayed as being real. They're documentary. It's a, it's a record of an event which occurred. And that's what we are expected to believe. But the point is that documentary evidence can be as fictitious as Hollywood at its finest. It's perfectly possible to do it. Now, about three years ago, a film was posted onto the internet. It was called Make Believe Smoke and Mirrors. It was two hours, 44 minutes long. It was an extremely technically advanced piece of filmmaking, and it purported to show how the whole Apollo photograph sequences, film sequences, were created. And it was done in a very sophisticated way. I mean, most people will say, well, if you film something at um, double the speed and play it back at half the speed, you get what, what would appear to be slow motion. Overcranking, they call that, yes. Overcranking. Now, that's a very simplified version of what was identified, that there are seven different slow motion speeds in the Apollo films, depending on where the astronauts happen to be in relation to the camera, where they're close to the camera, where they're far away from the camera. There's a piece of equipment called an optical printer. An optical printer you can take film and you can duplicate that film. If you shooting at, say, 144 frames per second, which is quite fast, using an optical printer, you can extract every other frame or every fifth frame or every tenth frame and project those as if it was the real thing because nobody can tell the difference. In this order, is, in other words, this this overcranking, this slow motion, is to replicate uh, the zero gravity in in or near zero gravity in space. Yes. Did they uh, have those optical printers though in 1969, Marcus? Yes, they did. Oh, yes, they existed. They were being used. <clears throat> it was being transferred from film onto video, and that existed as well. The it, it, it's an extraordinary accomplishment. If if what this film, Smoke and Mirror, Make Believe Smoke and Mirrors shows is real, it explains exactly how the whole Apollo deception was carried out. 
Now, as to the reasons why it needed to be carried out, I mean, that was maybe a separate discussion, but there were very valid reasons why it had to happen. Primarily because they couldn't actually get astronauts onto the lunar surface for real and back again alive because they didn't know how to protect them from the radiation which we know exists in space, the galactic cosmic rays, the solar particle events, all the uh, problems that, one, that humans would have in space once outside the protection of the Earth's atmosphere and the Van Allen radiation belts. Because that, that has only ever happened on Apollo. If it was that easy to do it, don't you think that the Soviet Union might have done it, China might have done it, India might have done it, Japan might have done it? Of course they would. One would have thought that uh, it, since 1973, that was uh, the last Apollo mission, uh, one would have thought that in, that in those 47 years, we would have done better than just an unmanned mission. Um, so, yeah. which which yeah. begs the question that I, I suppose why wouldn't the Russians uh, because you know they were supposedly defeated in the space race during the Cold War why wouldn't they have blown the whistle on the on, on NASA that's a very good question that's a question that's probably the most frequently asked question because I uh, one of the things I do is public presentations on this I, I quite enjoy doing them and that's the most frequently asked question why didn't the Russians blow the whistle if what you're saying is true and the reason is very simple why would they have blown the whistle uh, would it would it embarrass the, the Americans no it probably wouldn't they just say oh you're sore losers we beat you to the moon guys you know get over it but there are there are other political reasons as well Primarily because Apollo was a political um, mission, as announced by John Kennedy in May 1961. We're going to land a man on the moon before the decade is out and return him safely to the Earth. They didn't know they could do it then. had no idea. Alan Shepard had been up 100 miles and come down. That was the extent of American human spaceflight. Now, come forward a few years, and the Soviet Union has one major export, one major product to export, and that's natural gas. It has some oil as well, but natural gas is the main one. What date was the first major contract for the supply of Soviet Union natural gas into Western Europe? Don't forget the Cold War's going on at this time. But here they are, about to sign a contract to supply West Germany, Hungary and Italy with natural gas. September 1968. <laughs> Do you think that the Soviet Union, which were, let's say, they'd had some, a very unpleasant experience during the Second World, do you think they were going to jeopardize this good export market, which would help the whole country? We're saying well, a few Americans prancing around on the moon, don't believe a word of it, but, you know, we prefer to get the money for our natural gas. Of course they're going to do that. They're pragmatic people. They're not going to make any big song and dance about it. They knew perfectly well that no American had landed on the moon. What was the point of, of upsetting them? America were a powerful country. They still are a powerful country. They don't like coming second to anybody. The Soviet Union are much more willing to go along with it. And anyway, who in the Soviet Union at the time of Apollo would have been able to have the authority to go to the 
president of the Soviet Union, the general secretary of the uh, Politburo, in this case, Leonard Brezhnev, and say, we don't think the Americans are, are actually telling the truth. Who would have the authority to do it? There was nobody. The guy driving the Soviet space program was a guy called Sergei Korolev, and he had died very suddenly and unexpectedly in January 1966 when an operation uh, went wrong. There was no mystery about it. There was nobody who, would, who, could, who had the authority to take over, which is why one of the reasons why the Soviet space program stalled for several years. Marcus, I've got to jump in. We're heading into the, uh, the top of the hour. Okay. Marcus, you'll stay with us. We'll open up the phone lines, take questions and comments, and we'll uh, continue to delve into this uh, fascinating subject area. Was the lunar landing a hoax? And is the proof in the photographs? Back with more. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Photographer, writer, lecturer, and the distributor and publisher of the UK edition of Nexus magazine, Marcus Allen, is here discussing evidence that the Apollo lunar landings were a hoax, and uh, we will open up the phone lines and take questions and comments of this hour in the greater Toronto area. The number to call is 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. That's in the GTA, and toll-free from just about anywhere, one 866 740 Four seven forty one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Now, it, it would seem to me that it would be pretty easy to put this this whole discussion to rest. We have in the the Chilean Andes in South America uh, the uh, VLT, the Very Large Telescope. They really have to g- g- give it a better name, <laughs> the VLT. Yeah, a very large telescope, and uh, supposedly they could train that on the moon, on the surface, and it would enable them, for example, to see uh, the uh, you know the very the flags and the footprints and so forth and all these things that were left behind. Why don't they do that? Well, that's that's a that's a sensible suggestion. In fact, that was a, an article that uh, I contributed to, um, published about 15 years ago, when the, the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, was being developed. And they actually said, when we're going to test our telescope, we're going to train it on the moon and see if we can see the Apollo landers there. And uh, that was 15 years ago, 2002 that was. So um, they've been spending a long time testing it, but they haven't actually identified anything on the lunar surface. And the reason for that is, excuse me, the reason for that is quite straightforward. The Very Large Telescope, and there's actually now an ULT, an ultra-large telescope, which is supposed to be even better, it doesn't have the resolving power to be able to identify an object 10 foot high, which is what the lunar lander is, at a distance of 240,000 miles. Um, The same applies to the Hubble Space Telescope. 
that doesn't have the ability to see something of that size at that distance. But what about, what about the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter? Ah, glad you mentioned that, because that has the ability to see them. And in 2009, 2010, it was launched in 2009, it took photographs of the lunar landing sites and all the bits and pieces that were there in 2010. And it was actually lowered down from its orbit of uh, about 50 miles. It was lowered down to 15 miles above the lunar surface to photograph the Apollo landing sites, which it did. And you can see the photographs. They're on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter website. And it shows all six Apollo landing sites. There's a problem, though. In order to know what you're looking at, NASA have had to put large arrows saying lander or rover or flag or lunar surface experiment because you can't see a thing. And this is totally ridiculous. You've probably looked at uh, Google Maps and looked at your own house, and you can probably see a car even parked outside. Yes. And if it's got a sunroof, you'll know which, which way that car is pointing. Now, a few people might say, ah, oh, but Google Maps don't use satellite photographs all the time. They use high-flying aircraft. Yes, they do. So I decided to find uh, a satellite photograph taken in my case, of London, because that's where I, near where I live. And I found a very good photograph taken by the GOI-1 satellite, which orbits at 450 miles above the Earth's surface, photographing through 75 miles of the Earth's atmosphere with the dust and pollution and the distortion that that would create. And you can see individual cars on the ground. You can even see people on the ground. But the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which had photographic equipment on board, which was able to photograph things at the same resolution as the GOI-1 satellite, i.e. 0.41 meters, just over two feet, that was its resolution. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter had the same resolution. It could photograph objects of two feet across. But the photographs that have been displayed to show the Apollo landing sites you don't know what you're looking at. They're little blobs, black, mm -hmm. white. They're not distinct objects, which you see in, in this case, in London. You can see individual cars. You can see individual people. And it's a photograph of the London eye. So you can see individual uh, capsules on the London eye. And it's in color. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter photographs are in black and white. What's going on? Of that is a problem. Second? That is a problem. It's a major problem because NASA are trying to persuade us that they have photographed the Apollo landing sites, but you can't identify anything on them at all from 15 miles away. I mean, through the vacuum of space. It makes no sense whatsoever. And anybody who claims that they are definitive proof of the landing is talking through their hat because they're photoshopped. It's obvious. If you if you know how to identify a photoshopped image, you can see it is. All right, so they put the, the captions and the lettering on it. Maybe that's photoshopped. But 
you can't see individual footprints. You can't see individual tracks on the lunar surface. Or if you can, NASA claimed to show individual tracks, they're as wide as the lander. What are they, giants or something? It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's such a ridiculous idea. They're desperate to prove that they landed on the moon. Why don't they just hold their hands up and say, okay, it was a Cold War effort. We had to demonstrate to the world that America were technologically superior to the Soviet Union. We did it. We landed on the moon, or we said we did. Everybody believed it. We won the Cold War. The Soviet Union collapsed. It's now the Russian Federation. Let's just move on. Let's solve the problems of space and let's stop mucking about with ridiculous ideas of sending humans to the moon 50 years ago. It never happened. Forget it. Uh, you, um, I mean, you lecture on this you, and you go right into the belly of the beast. Didn't you speak to before the, the British Interplanetary Society? Oh, yes, I did. How well, did that go? Oh, that was great fun. Yeah, I was invited to speak to the British Interplanetary Society, which is the longest established um, space enthusiast group, I think you could call it. Uh, founded in 1933 in Liverpool, city of Liverpool. Great football team there, by the way. They moved to London uh, just before the war. Arthur C. Clarke was a leading member, uh, very influential member. Patrick Moore, the astronomer who recently died, was a member. Many important people within the space industry. Neil Armstrong was an honorary member of the British Interplanetary Society. Anyway, I was invited to speak there, this was in 2012, just before the London Olympics. Uh, I was invited to speak, and it caused terrible stir online. A lot of people said, how dare the venerable institution invite a hoax believer? That's what I am, apparently. I'm a hoax believer. How dare they besmirch themselves with somebody like this? So anyway, I, I agreed that I would discuss only the photographs. I would make no comment about any of the Apollo uh, landings or anything like that. I'd just look at the photographs and show the anomalies which I identified in the photographs, which I'd done. There have been several of that. And that went quite well. And uh, they were very respectful. They didn't jeer me. They didn't throw anything at me. And um, they asked very, very intelligent questions. But at the end of the day, it, uh, I was put up against somebody who would refute everything I had to say because he was a, a knowledgeable space enthusiast. So that uh, I, I was looking forward to this because I thought, well, if somebody's going to show me that I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong, show me why I'm wrong, I want to hear it. Um, because if I've got it wrong, then I should shut up and go away and do something else. But I wasn't because this person didn't in any way, shape or form, refute anything that I had said. In fact, one of the questions was, uh, why, didn't, um, why didn't this person refute what Marcus said? I haven't heard anything against what he said. Was it what he said true? So it was a bit embarrassing. Anyway, I joined the British Interplanetary Society. I've been a member ever since. And it was at the British Interplanetary Society, as I said at the beginning of the show, that I heard this talk, which made me realize that uh, vacuums have serious detrimental effects on photographic film. And ironically, one of, one of my uh, good friends uh, lives very near Toronto, Scott Henderson, and he's a very enthusiastic Apollo researcher. And he decided to look into it as well, introduced me to a friend of his uh, called Bob Williams, who 
went out and bought a vacuum chamber to do the testing. There's another person who lives in Toronto. It's called Randy Walsh, who's written a very, very good book on the subject, uh, not, not to do with vacuum, to do with the inadequacy of the Saturn V rocket. It didn't appear to be able to do what it was claimed to do. And if it was such a wonderful piece of kit, which would launch 130 tons into lunar orbit, how come 50 years later they still haven't got a rocket that'll do better? The space launch system will only launch 130 tons into Earth orbit. So NASA appears to have gone backwards. And the uh, interesting development recently where Vice President Pence announced the return to the moon by 2024, and they've already put it back four years. We can't do it by 2024. We need more money. We need more people. We haven't got enough time. Hang on a minute. It took Apollo seven years from a standing start to allegedly landing on the moon. And you can't do it again with all the technology in the, for the last 50 years. You can't get back to the moon in less time than it took Apollo to do it. What's going right. on? They've pushed it back to 2028. Is that right? Yeah, it is. They pushed it back to 2028. Uh, it's called Artemis, this program. Artemis was Apollo's twin sister. So they're presumably going to put ladies on the moon. Well, they've got to get some spacesuits for them to wear because they haven't got those yet. Mm -hmm. And spacesuits are a bit of an important part of the kit to get onto the lunar surface. So I don't see... Um, President Trump being particularly pleased, being told that he can't achieve something which uh, occurred 50 years ago. It just doesn't make sense. Speaking of spacesuits, how does air conditioning work in the vacuum of space? How would they keep cool? Well, well air conditioning doesn't work in the vacuum of space because there's nowhere to dump the heat. Aha. The vacuum of space is a very good insulator. The only way to remove heat from a spacecraft or a spacesuit or from anything is radiate the heat away. Uh, it's, it's something called the black body radiation temperature, where you use the Stefan Boltzmann constant to work out what the temperature of any body in space is going to be. And it depends on the amount of radiant energy being absorbed by that body and the amount of radiation of heat away from the body. And there will be a point at which the two are in equilibrium, i.e. there's as much heat being radiated away as there is being absorbed. And you can do the calculation. And if you take a spacecraft, a lunar lander, <clears throat> you know how much heat is being absorbed by it. You know how much heat it can radiate away and the temperature and the time it would take to do that. And you can calculate the internal temperature of the lunar lander. And this is science, you know, this is physics, this, this is straightforward calculation, and the answer is 240 degrees Fahrenheit, hot enough to cook a chicken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not Because you can't have an air conditioning unit in space. It doesn't work. There's nowhere to dump the heat. Therefore, you can only radiate it away. There doesn't appear to have been enough heat radiated away, certainly not in the spacesuits, because they were... Um, uh, recirculating the air inside, you can remove heat. It's called the explosive decompression of water, where you vent water into a vacuum, and that will remove heat. And that, again, the temperature can be calculated. So you know how much 
temperature has to be removed from a spacesuit to, to enable somebody within that spacesuit to operate comfortably, and it would be about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, the internal temperature. So you know how much heat you've got to remove from it. You know the area uh, that the spacesuit occupies, uh, so you know how much heat is being absorbed by the spacesuit, as well as the internal heat from the astronaut inside the spacesuit. So you know how much water you're going to need to be able to, to remove that heat. And there isn't enough water carried on the spacesuit to do it. It's only about 20 minutes, not eight hours, as we're told occurred on Apollo 17. So you've got this ridiculous inconsistency with all the equipment and all the vacuum levels. And then you start getting into the vacuum problems of the film, and you realize that the whole thing is a fabrication. Apollo was a fabrication for political reasons. How does NASA respond to the uh, the air conditioning question, which we, I've never really heard a discussion on that. And uh, as you've just explained it, that it doesn't that I've never heard that that issue uh, resolved. What do they say? Uh, NASA tend not to address these questions. Um, when uh, David Percy uh, and Mary Bennett were making their very complex film, What Happened on the Moon, it's a DVD, which looked into all these things. They interviewed NASA. They, uh, it was, um, um, he, he was the uh, media spokesman. And he was approached and he was asked these questions. He was asked about the photographs. And his response to several intelligent questions was, we don't have enough time for this nitpicky claptrap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, nitpicky so claptrap. NASA is living up to its other name of never a straight answer. So that's, uh, that's the answer to your question. <laughs> There's never a straight answer. Right. Now, this is a question I'm sure you fielded uh, ad nauseum, but uh, I have to throw it out there. And that is, how do you keep something... Uh, like a like a lunar landing hoax. How do you keep that a secret when I'm not sure what the figure is, the number of people that worked on the project, but tens of thousands, I'm guessing. 400,000. 400,000. 400,000, yes. Because one of the things that NASA did to spread the load, as it were, they wanted to employ people in all 50 states in America. I don't know if they achieved it, but they certainly had companies working on little parts of the uh, NASA program. There's, there were a lot of things to do. They had to build the rockets and the landers and the rovers and the spacesuits and the control centers. Um, I mean, this was Boeing up in Washington State, Lockheed down in California, the control centers in Texas, the spacesuits in Delaware. Uh, Grumman were operating, I believe, in New York, making the uh, lunar lander. So it was going on all across America. And the figure normally quoted is 400,000 people who were working on it. Obviously, some of these were drivers and security staff and secretaries and cafeteria staff. But a lot of them were rocket scientists. So how do you keep this incredible story a secret? You don't. You don't. Do you really think that uh, you're going to go along and say to the people making the um, spacesuits, don't tell anybody. Nobody's going to the moon. But don't tell anybody, though. Of course you're not going to do that. Everybody working on Apollo throughout America in the uh, eight years it took to create it were doing the very best job they could. 
they were working out what they had to do and they were doing the best job they could. So if you're building a rocket, you'll, you'll build the best rocket you can. You want to make it work because you know you're going to watch it take off because it's all going to be live on television, isn't it? So you can all sit down and watch it and say, well, look, I, I did a little bit of that. And you're going to be very proud of it. No, there was no big secret to keep. It's called compartmentalization. That is the way in which you, you know you have enough information to do your own job. You don't need to know anymore. The person building the rocket didn't have any reason to know what the people doing the control center were. People building the spacesuits had no reason to, un to know anything about the rovers. All they knew was they had to build the best spacesuits they could or the best rovers they could. There was no secret to keep. So this idea... It, any, well, aside, any, from, aside from the astronauts who actually supposedly walked on the surface, how many people would, had to, have, would have, uh, to have been in on the secret uh, I, minimum? Yeah, good point. Uh, I would say that a maximum of 40. There were 20, 24 astronauts, Apollo astronauts, they were always the capsule Capcom at um, uh, Houston. The only person allowed to speak to the astronauts was another astronaut. So the astronauts would have probably known there would have been a certain number of photographers around, a certain number of senior personnel who would have had an overview of the whole picture, but very, very few. And they're not about to start talking about it. They are. All right, uh, Marcus, we've got to take another time out. We'll come back and we'll get to some calls as well. Marcus Allen stays with us from Nexus Magazine right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Marcus Allen stays with us. We'll get to the phone calls in just a moment. Just a quick programming note. Next week on this transmission, Dr. Andrew Silverman uh, will be with us. And uh, he's just written a new book called A Burst of Conscious Light, Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin, and the Limitless Potential of Humanity. That's Dr. Andrew Silverman, live from the UK. That's next week on The Conspiracy Show. All right, let's say hi to uh, Scott checking in from London, Ontario. Scott, welcome. Yes, good evening, or good morning, Mr. Allen. How are you this morning? Thank you, Scott. Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Yes, I don't want to steal your thunder. I just wanted to say hi. How's the, how's the weather? I hear it's windy and... Uh, the UK. Oh, it's been very windy for the last 24 hours. It's calmed down a bit now. A few trees got blown over, but that was about it. Yeah. But, but it, the only it's, thing it's I could, near... I could uh, add is that uh, there probably had to be at least 40 people in on it because you have to add in the Playboy bunnies and the golf pro. Oh, you do? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, you'll have to explain that one. Sorry, the, the Playboy Bunny. Sorry, that went over my head. Uh, the Playboy Bunnies are are in the cue cards. They have three of them in the cue cards. Displayed. In the, like instead yeah, sorry. of the instructions on what they're supposed to be doing, they had Playboy Bunnies. Ah, okay, I see. Got it. And there are golf <laughs> all right. balls all over the set. 
They can be found everywhere in the photographs. All right. Thank yeah, you for that. Go ahead. Did you want to respond? Yeah, I was, I was going to say when uh, when some of the astronauts were were out moving around, they had what's called cue cards strapped to their wrist, and as a prank, somebody had put a Playboy bunny in one of them. Okay, all like right. A photograph of a Playboy bunny. If anybody can remember those, it's I don't. That, that, hence my confusion. All right. Thank uh, you for that, okay. Scott. Let's say hi to Jim from Toronto. Jim, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Is Jim there? Jim from Toronto? Hello, Mr. Allen. How are you two? I'm well, thank you. Um, I just have uh, two, quick, uh, two quick questions. Um, number one, um, uh, I, I've seen this for a while on the internet. Um, do you think that uh, Steven Spielberg was involved with the, the filming and all that, like faking the, the landing on the moon? I think you mean Stanley Kubrick. Oh, I thought it was Steven Spielberg. Well, the, the name that comes most often up most often is Stanley Kubrick. and uh, was supposedly using some of the same equipment he used on um, uh, Space Odyssey. Okay. Um, second question real quick. Um, uh, that mo- I, I don't know if you guys have seen that movie Ad Astra. I have uh, not. No, I haven't yet. Um, I've heard about it. It's quite good, apparently. Uh, I was just wondering, because it shows them having a colony on the moon. Do you think that's possible in the near future or distant future? It's certainly possible to, to have a colony on the moon, but they'll they'll need to burrow underground to protect themselves from the radiation. Okay, but then. it's possible. I mean, first of all, they've got to get to the moon. They haven't even worked out how to do that yet. They certainly haven't got a lander. That hasn't been developed yet, let alone designed. Uh, and... and maybe- uh, sorry, uh, maybe one more quick question. Uh, why sure. haven't uh, humans actually gone to the moon in so long? Well, that's precisely the question. Yeah, because it's a very dangerous place to get to. Space space is not an environment that humans are designed to survive in. <coughs> All right, Jim, thank you for that. Well, let's address the Stanley Kubrick uh, legend uh, okay. that he may have been involved. Does he seem like a likely candidate, the one the one that would be able to pull something like that off? Well, Stanley Kubrick would certainly be, uh, shall we say, the top choice if anybody wanted to... Uh, to film something of that complexity. Uh, but the, w- one problem with that is Stanley Kubrick usually wanted to, uh, would have insisted on filming on location to get the actual right, get the scene right. <laughs> he was a perfectionist. A but yeah. uh, uh, in my view, there is a connection with Stanley Kubrick. I don't believe Stanley Kubrick had very much to do with the filming. He was a film director. The person who might have not only been connected to Stanley Kubrick, but would certainly have had the skills to do the close model work that was required. And a great deal of what we see on the Apollo films are models. Uh, Certainly the rover is a radio-controlled model, and there are mannequins, i.e. false humans, uh, was his special effects director, Douglas Trumbull, or possibly John Dykstra, who uh, worked on uh, Star Wars. These are people who had the skills to do model work, which was what was being used in 2001 A Space Odyssey. It wasn't CGI. They were all miniatures. They were all models. 
the the famous revolving space station you see uh, between the Earth and the Moon in 2001, A Space Odyssey, was about six foot in diameter. It was built as a model. It was filmed as a model, but it was projected in such a way that the perspective was realistic enough for you to believe it was several hundred feet in diameter and it was floating in space. That was the skill of the special effects director. So whether he did have anything to do with it or not, I don't know, but he would be a top candidate if anybody was going to, uh, shall we say, fabricate it. Because that's what you would need. You would need special effects skills. And Douglas Trumbull used models. He didn't use uh, CGI. He didn't use blue screen. That came much later. These were all miniatures. Um, he was involved with uh, Back to the Future. He was involved with Blade Runner, uh, the original Blade Runner, and um, Close Encounters. So he did work also with uh, Steven Spielberg on Close Encounters, but he worked primarily with Stanley Kubrick uh, on 2001 Space Odyssey, but he worked with other directors as well. But his particular skill was in the use of effects. There's something called a snorkel camera. Anybody who's worked on film special effects will know the snorkel camera is what you use if you want to photograph models and the film which is then projected will appear to be life-size. Not model because it, it, it corrects the perspective and that was one of the ways in which you can always tell if a, if a special effects uh, scene has been used because the perspective appears wrong. Right, right. Um, on, on a great many of the Apollo photographs, the perspective is correct because whoever created them knew exactly what they were doing. And in many cases, they were using models. They were using big um, stage sets. It was about 300 feet, more than 300 feet in diameter, the set. The backgrounds were projected, and that's where the front projection comes in. That's what Stanley Kubrick was using in 2001 A Space Odyssey on the uh, Dawn of Man sequence at the beginning of the film. It was all filmed in uh, studios in the UK, but the, f the, the scene appears to be on the African plains. No, they were photographs, projected. It's a very good way of doing it. You don't have to travel all the way out to Africa to do the scene. You can do it in, in um, uh, MGM Studios in Boreham Wood, which is where he worked. What, what other photographic? We're heading into a break here shortly. But what other photographic irregularities have you have you noticed that we haven't covered? Um, there are some. There are. It's a good. It's a good question. I'm just trying to work out what the most significant one would be. There are several where, in fact, earlier you'd mentioned shadows going in strange directions. Um, one point I should make is that if you use more than one light source on a film, you may well get more than one shadow from the same object. And that doesn't appear on the uh, Apollo photographs. The, the, the shadows go in, in strange directions on some of them, but that partly that is the, the, the artifact of using a film, a, a camera, which takes one viewpoint and we've got two eyes. So we have two viewpoints. So that's why we can get stereo vision. And we sometimes don't compensate enough. When we uh, look at a railway line going off into the distance, we know that the railway line is parallel, 
but we see it as going off into one point in the distance called the vanishing point. And that's to do with perspective. Most of the photographs are correct in what they show. There are some photographs which do show shadows at angles which are much greater than one would expect from a single light source, i.e. presumably the sun. And uh, there's one quite famous one uh, of Apollo 17, where you have the astronaut in the fore- you have the shadow of the astronaut in the foreground. So obviously the sun is directly behind the astronaut, and a little rock about four or five feet to his right. The shadow for that appears to be at right angles to his own shadow. Well, that can't happen. Well, could that be explained by the irregular uh, surface and also that the moon itself is, it's reflecting, but then it's a light source? Uh, Well, yes, this is uh, the argument put forward by many people that the moon itself is a light source, which implies that the light hitting it, let's, let's say that the moon is illuminated by the sun, which we know it is. And we can look up in the sky and we can see the moon. And it's bright, but it's not too bright to look at. We can't look at the sun because we know that's too bright. So how much light from the sun that hits the moon is reflected from it? And the answer is about 8%, depending on the surface material. The amount of light hitting the Earth and reflected from it is about 35% because we have clouds which are white and oceans which are blue, which are relatively light. On the Moon, we're told there is a special reflective surface which reflects the light, which shows that the shadows uh, are illuminated. And we go back to the uh, famous photograph of Buzz Aldrin walking down the ladder and he's lit up like a Christmas tree. But he's in the shadow of the lander. So where's that light source coming from? Oh, it's the reflective surface of the moon, we're told. No, it's not. The the lunar surface has the reflectivity of a road surface. 8% is reflective. Ah. It can't, there isn't enough light being reflected off the lunar surface to be recorded by the photographic film used to make, to picture the scene, Kodak Ektachrome film. There is not enough light being reflected off that surface unless there is an additional light source. And that's what appears to be the case. If you use a technical term, it's called ray tracing, where you can actually trace shadows and work out where the light source that created that illumination is coming from. Okay, uh, Marcus, we'll take another time out. We'll come back and get to some more calls. Marcus Allen with me right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Marcus Allen from Nexus Magazine stays with us. Uh, Let's go right to the phones. Monique is calling from New York. Good morning, Monique. Yes. Hi there. You hear me? I can. You're yes. on the air with Marcus Allen. Go yes. ahead. Good, good evening for us. Uh, I'm very happy that I'm not the only one to believe that we never went to the moon. Uh, and um, so it, I felt very good about it. Here are a few things I wanted to let you know. Do you remember the picture of the first step of the astronaut? 
Yes, I do. I am a um, amateur photographer. The the angle of this picture means the camera was opposite the person. Now there was no camera on the foot of the module. The 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 angle of the picture should have been from top down. And if you look That's at it, good. it's just straight ahead of the person. Where was the camera? Huh. Well, we're told yeah. it was it was attached to the the eagle. It doesn't make sense because um, they didn't have time to put a camera there because when they went down, the camera would have been burned by the friction. Oh, uh, yes, that, that, uh, the camera that photographed um, the astronauts coming down the ladder and stepping onto the lunar surface, that was a TV camera made by Westinghouse, TV camera that was on a special panel on the side of the lander that was released by Neil Armstrong just before he exited the lunar lander. Okay, make the camera was, yeah. was, was, was deliberately set up so that it would photograph him walking down the ladder. Now, when uh, he, yeah. After he'd done that, the camera was then taken away and put onto a tripod about 50 foot away so that we could see them erecting the flag. Now, do you, do you see the difference in the quality of the picture going down the steps and then of the flag? Two completely, it was very poor. completely different uh, quality. Yes, that's correct. It's very different. It's very bad quality. But, but, but one point which has never been addressed, to my knowledge, is how did they transmit that picture? I don't think they had the the possibility. They didn't have the technology advanced to do that. Well, and they certainly didn't have the power on the lunar lander to transmit a television picture live across 240,000 miles of space and through 75 miles of the Earth's atmosphere because the lunar lander only had batteries. Yeah. And then the picture they took... I saw that something was wrong. The sky was much too dark and the f- the floor was much too light. The difference between the two didn't match a normal picture. When you take a picture, somehow it, isn't, it doesn't go. And the cameras I had on those times were not capable of doing the automatic like today. Is everything is computerized. So the camera would adjust. In those times, we didn't have those technology. No, that's, that's correct. Well, we did. Well, yes, the contrast. But that's contrast. that, for example, the contrast is why is how, for example, they explain why there are no stars see, visible in the in the in, in the sky. Uh, yeah, but because when I take my camera with my camera today, which has an eye, the the camera will adjust either or. Either the floor will be very bright and the, the sky dark, or vice versa. They right. didn't have that technology on those times. No, it is true, and and also, but as um, as Richard said, that's why we don't see stars in the sky because the there's too, it's too wide a range of illumination for the film to record it correctly. So they but got that right. <laughs> they got that part right. I don't think oh, they got it right. It was it was made up. It's not possible. Then we have well, another thing. The astronauts lived very old. Now, if they have, they would have been. Uh, um, there, with all the the um, the radiation. Uh, radiation, they wouldn't have been able to live that long, and they also well, refused to be interviewed many times. 
Well, Neil Armstrong certainly seemed like he was at a funeral. One would expect after being the first man to walk on the moon, he would have been just overjoyed and, and ebullient. Uh, and yet, uh, he, he seemed like he was at a funeral. I always found that rather peculiar. I, I, th I think many people have found that peculiar. That That's the uh, press conference, the Apollo 11 press conference on August the 12th, uh, after they come out of their quarantine Winnebago. Uh, they came out, and, and as you say, they looked like they were at a funeral. Well, actually, they probably were, because <laughs> they knew perfectly well that if they uh, stepped out of line, they'd be six foot under in no time at all, because they had to maintain the fiction that they'd been to the moon. Nobody's been to the moon. Do so you have right. in one of the Monique, Monique, we, we are out of time. I have to, we're heading into a break. Um, hold on, and we'll get to your follow-up question on the other side. Marcus Allen from Nexus Magazine stays with us. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And you can say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y because I love you, R-E-T-T. -T. And uh, just a reminder, uh, get on up to my website, Strange Planet. Dot CA and register. It's very quick, very, very quick and simple. Just need your name and email, and uh, then you will automatically subscribe to my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. And uh, also, your name automatically goes into the, into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. All right, uh, Monique from New York. One yes. final question before yeah, we move on, because I want to get to some was, other callers. Um, do you remember that in one of the pictures they had forgotten to take the floodlights uh, in the back? You could see from far away there were floodlights, like a camera set up. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, Marcus, does that sound familiar? Yes, there are several photographs which, which show what appears to be some sort of light in the background. Uh, they're usually dismissed as being lens flare, but uh, ironically, the Hasselblad lenses don't flare in that way. These, yep. there, are several, there are several photographs showing two apparent light sources in the background, mainly on Apollo 12 that, that occurs there, where you've got some very, very good photographs of uh, Al Bean, who was the astronaut being photographed. And in the background, there's what looks like a piece of uh, apparatus with a couple of lights on it, as, as if they didn't do it. Now, if nobody landed on the moon, which is what I claim, and if anybody doesn't, doesn't agree with that and thinks that they did land on the moon, would they please provide me with three pieces of incontrovertible evidence that humans have landed on the lunar surface. In 25 years, I haven't found it. Nobody's provided it. So if there's somebody out there jumping up and down saying, he's talking rubbish, what is he on about? I know they landed on the moon. Right, tell me. Go to nexusmagazine.com, use the contact button, and you can send me an email. And I'll be delighted to hear from you. Don't be rude. No nasty names. Just explain how you ex understand that man has landed on the moon. I'll be delighted to hear. And if you can prove me wrong, I'll shut up, go away, and do something completely different. 
<laughs> Monique, thanks for the call. What kind of incontrovertible evidence would you be looking for? Evidence that is not uh, only available from NASA. I don't want to hear about the lunar reconnaissance orbiter photographs because uh, we've already covered that. I don't want to hear about uh, moon rocks because uh, there's no no saying that those all came from the moon. There's no there's no independent evidence that they came back from the moon. Please don't quote the uh, moon rock in the Netherlands because we know that that isn't correct. And there's some there's some interesting uh there could well be evidence i'd love to know what it is i'm i'm more interested to 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 find out that i'm wrong than to find out i i know i'm right when i say that no human has landed on the moon and returned to earth because there's no evidence that they have all right let's say let's say hi to razia who's checking in from hamilton ontario razia good morning welcome to the conspiracy show yeah good morning I listen to your show every Sunday. But Thank you. God bless just, you. Your guest is 10 years late because France exposed the whole thing in France 10 years ago. My nephew, he speaks fluent French and he worked in France for six years and he married a French girl. And he, he was telling me about the show documentary on French TV about what a big hoax this landing on the moon was. And I was arguing with my nephew that how can America do something so such a big lie like that? Like, it's world. I, I was in 1969. I came from India to England, and I watched the whole landing that 1969. Me and my brother-in-law, we stayed up the whole night watching the moon, I mean, watching the whole documentary show going on with David Frost. But my nephew said that, that they never went to the moon. It was all a big hoax. And France exposed this whole thing 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago. Well, Marcus so isn't, they, you know, new, this is, Some yes, know Marcus isn't new to this dance. He's been talking France about this for, the only one for many years. A documentary about the whole thing. Well, no, that's not true. There have been a number of documentaries. Uh, uh, a very good one called "A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon," which yeah. is over ten years old. So, yes, a number of people have made documentaries about this. Yeah, but you uh, are you familiar with that particular on documentary? You, on Mark? the whole thing in France, people were glued to the TV listening to this documentary. And All right, let's get Marcus to respond, right? if I could get then. Marcus. Okay, if I could get Marcus to respond. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it's certainly true that uh, there have been documentaries made in many countries uh, refuting the moon landings. I've appeared on uh, French television contributing to one of the programs, not 10 years ago. This was about four or five years ago. I've appeared on Israeli television and Russian television, German television. There are many countries which are examining this now, and I believe the current figure is that 25% of people in America don't believe we landed on the moon. And that figure's gone up from 6% about 15 years ago. So an increasing number of people are taking the time and trouble to examine it. And like me, have found the uh, explanation for humans landing on the moon to be seriously deficient in hard, factual, verifiable evidence. Uh, and, Marcus, and, 
let me just throw one more quick one here and let me yeah. get you to respond to this. This has to do with the Van Allen belts, which we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, I'm just reading here on a website, uh, talking about this gap between the inner and outer Van Allen belt, sometimes called the safe zone or a safe slot, is caused by the very low frequency waves which scatter particles and pitch angle, which results in the, oh, well, anyway, they're talking about this safe zone. And so that the idea is that the... <coughs> The um, the rocket flew through this safe zone, minimizing the amount of radiation that the astronauts were exposed to. Ah, 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 dear, oh dear. Yes, there's all sorts of wonderful excuses. Um, yes, there is a separation between the two belts. There's an inner belt and an outer belt. So there will be an area where there is less radiation. <clears throat> but this idea that the astronauts skirted around the belts, so avoiding them, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And it's actually a fabrication. Because if you're launching a rocket, which Apollo was launched from uh, Cape Canaveral uh, in Florida, and they flew out over the Atlantic towards Africa. And they would then circle the Earth um, and come back over North America and go on round. If you're going to do that, and after two, two orbits, you're going to then launch towards the moon, which you can see, I mean, the moon's visible when you're orbiting the Earth, uh, and you head towards the moon, you're going to reach it three days later. Now, NASA have managed to come up with this wonderful explanation, whereby they acknowledge that the Van Allen radiation belts are a danger, because they now say that we skirted around them by launching the rockets through the poles because the Van Allen belts are not effective at the North and South Pole. Right, they're thinnest there. Yes, they're, they're thinnest. But there's a problem with that explanation that you can't just change direction in your rocket. It takes a lot of fuel to do that. Rockets don't have brakes. They don't have a steering wheel. so. When you set off on your rocket, it's the first law of motion. Uh, an object will remain in motion unless acted upon by another force. If you're going to go exit the, uh, an orbit on the Earth through the poles or via the poles, you have to be on a polar orbit. And the okay, only well, way to be on a polar orbit is if you're launched from somewhere like, Cape, uh, like Vandenberg Air Force Base. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there, Marcus, because we are out of time. But uh, okay. thank you so much for this. And again, Nexus Magazine, available at all good bookstores, newsstands, or you can go to uh, the website again quickly. Nexusmagazine.com. That's Excellent. your source of information. Marcus, always a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. All right. My thanks to Owen and Ryan. Back next week with a brand new program, Talking the Shroud of Turin. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.